Please turn with me now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Let us pray. Lord, what great things we read and what blessing we would ask to have from it. Lord, we pray that these words would not leave us unmoved. We pray that these words would not be things that are just written on paper, but things inscribed in our hearts, that you would enable us to truly see the, the wonderful, infallible purposes of God to be seen in this moment of time, to be seen in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the worship that was given. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd be blessed in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come in our series in Luke to the triumphal entry here in Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. Now, the idea of a triumphal entry is more generic, a larger category than, than this particular instance of Christ's triumphal entry. The concept is of a king entering into, in peace into his capital city, in this case, Jerusalem. Now, if that's the generic situation, of course, this is the height. This is the, the antitype. This is the thing to which everything else, every triumphal entry, that is, every triumphal procession that has ever been, points. In this case, sadly, it is a very mixed situation. And maybe that's one reason why it's hard for us to grasp all the significance, to catch uh, what is useful for us spiritually because it's so mixed, we don't know exactly what to think about it. The disciples seem happy enough to take part in the celebration, but we know that's probably only because they're so deeply confused as to the nature of Christ's kingdom and what is about to happen. They still think, despite everything they've been told, that maybe it's really going to happen, and he's going to be proclaimed and crowned king there in Jerusalem, and they will take up their places in his government. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, are absolutely aghast at what is happening, both from a religious and from a political standpoint. They don't like Jesus, they oppose him, they think he's a false teacher, and the idea of him being proclaimed king is absolutely too much. They think it's blasphemous. They know that this is all a picture. The thing that is going on looks like what should happen when the Messiah, the Christ, come. They're convinced that Jesus isn't that, and so they oppose it from a religious standpoint and also from a political one. As is later revealed, they are in absolute dread of the Romans thinking that they have that the people have begun some sort of rebellion against the Roman occupation and they'll come and crush everyone and throw them out of their whatever uh, shred of authority they still had and things will be even worse than they used to be. So they say, rebuke your disciples. The people now, they're willing to participate at the moment, but we're about to see just how fickle their affections are because at one moment they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this Hosanna to the son of David. But on the other hand, we know that soon enough they'll be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Give us the terrorist instead. And Jesus, well, I, I, don't, I can't accurately portray to you exactly what was shown on his face that wasn't given to us. We know that he certainly participated in this celebration willingly and indeed gave directions concerning it. It was necessary that this would happen. It had to happen. But of course, he knew what he was going to do there. He was going to die. Now, he would do it nonetheless. And I think this is really the thing that we're looking at mainly. He is going to Jerusalem to die. He knows that. That is, willing, that is because he is so willing and so, in fact, determined to carry out the sovereign purposes of God in salvation. Because this is really the gospel. This is not about things that maybe could have happened, uh, a long series of accidents in which who would have, that, that this thing we had no idea that was going to happen and the other thing happened randomly and we don't know exactly why it happened the way it did and, and it was just a random puzzle that eventually was, was there. But no, all these things were determined from what Jesus had said. He'd already said all these things were going to happen. But before him, the prophets had said those things. They had prophesied these things precisely, and they happened exactly as they were prophesied. And that even was a reflection of the eternal purposes of God. How can Jesus so easily say, go, you're going to find a cult in this particular circumstance, in this village which I've not been, go and get him and bring him. Why? Because it's the sovereign and eternal purpose of God. But all things relating to the work of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, these things were absolutely predetermined according to his purposes. And that's the nature of our gospel. It's no accident. It's necessary in the purposes of God that these good things would happen. And I think it is useful, just as a foretaste of the applications, to remind ourselves that we have to understand that however it seems around us, however unlikely that things could ever issue in the fullness of, the, of, of God's purposes being carried out, we can be certain that God is yet working out his purposes even today. Well, the title is a long one, children, so better get writing. It is The Triumphal Entry, A Study in the Infallible Purpose of God. The triumphal entry, a study in the infallible purpose of God. And there are three points. Christ's steadfast purpose, the disciples' infallible errand, and the 
Thirdly, the people's necessary worship. We begin first, Christ's steadfast purpose. Verse 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, it's very easy in the long list of things there to miss the significance of these words. But notice, it is not merely that Jesus was going on towards his destination. And maybe there were others there before him. Maybe he was walking slowly. Maybe he was walking very reluctantly. But no, well, let me say, by the way, even if it was that, that would be remarkable enough. All right, just merely that he was making his way at any speed with any degree of reluctance toward Jerusalem would be more than remarkable because he knows exactly what is going to happen there, where he's going to be arrested and tried and convicted and tortured and killed. Yet he walks towards her. But well beyond that, it says he went on behead, uh, ahead. And, and a better way of saying it is maybe he walked on in front or before them, because that would be a more literal translation. He's going on before them. They can't keep up with him. Before they were ready to go, he was ready to go. Whatever pace that they're willing to go, he's willing to go a little bit faster. He is leading from the front. He is going on before them. And we're reminded of the picture of Jesus' obedience through all of this. Jesus showed his obedience every day in his upholding of the law of God. But in the greatest and most significant way, he showed his obedience And as he was called to go up to Jerusalem in order to die to be the Lamb of God, he went obediently, steadfastly, with determination, and he did so with speed. He did so with purpose in his step. Now that, by the way, is only the continuation of the great theme that has begun. Really, it seems that we've been in this part of Luke forever. But you remember in the latter part of Luke 9, it's where it began, this great theme of going up to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans prepared for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. He had so set his face for Jerusalem. The people there thought, well, he surely must not be staying among us because it looks like he absolutely intends to go on because he had set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And this then is the theme that uh, almost every chapter is there some reminder of his steadfast mission going on to Jerusalem. In Luke 13, he went through all the cities and villages teaching and journeying to Jerusalem. Or in Luke 17, 11, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem. And most recently in, ver- in chapter 18, in verse 31, then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. They understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that were spoken. That's the theme. If you want to put it all into words of all this middle section, that's what it's all about. Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus knows what he's going to do, and nothing will stop him from carrying out that purpose. He is going to Jerusalem to die, and also to be risen again. And the disciples don't understand. 
This theme itself is a, ref- a reflection of the steadfast determination of Christ to fulfill his mission. That's what it was all about. I mean, think of all the times that he had some opportunity to, to turn aside from it. Of all the opportunities, yes, of course, to fail of his mission. There are many snares laid for him, many traps that were laid along the way. If you think of the road to Jerusalem, beginning of the, of the start of the Lord Jesus' life, it is absolutely filled with every pitfall, with every trap that you can imagine, with every ambush waiting for him from the very beginning. As, as those wicked, uh, the wicked king sought to destroy all the babies, all the male children, in order that, that perhaps he might kill Jesus in the process. And that was him as a baby. And it didn't stop from that point on. There were all these pitfalls, certainly the temptation of Satan and, and uh, the, the crowd as they sought to kill him on more than one occasion. And the Pharisees and religious leaders have been looking for opportunities to have him assassinated or arrested all throughout. And yet he's still there. He's still walking with his steadfast determination. You know, we, in, in the Marines, we use various heroes to illustrate the determination that we wanted to inculcate in the Marines. We didn't want them to be the sort of ones that we tell them to do something and any little thing stops them. But we say, nothing, let nothing absolutely stop you from accomplishing the purpose that is given to you. But this is a supreme example. Jesus Christ is a supreme example. We should have used him because he indeed is the ultimate hero and nothing could stop him from carrying out the mission that he was assigned. And all that even. Even that is a reflection then of the eternal purposes of the triune God. That's what it says in Ephesians 3.9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages had been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could spend some time on the mystery and amazement of saying that the the wisdom of God is made known by the church to the principalities and powers. Not that the principalities and, and powers are making these things made known to us, but we in the church are making known these things to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. But all of that is according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we see this God-man with his steadfast face set to go to Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples, what do we see in that face? We see the eternal purposes of God in the Lord Jesus Christ for our redemption. Well, that was Christ's steadfast purpose. Secondly, we see the disciples' infallible errand. In verse 29, And it came to pass, when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, Because the Lord has need of it. Again, many things could be said here. Let me just point out that Jesus was apparently no great lover of pomp and circumstance. We do not see much of that at all thus far in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He dressed simply. He went simply. He made no great ceremony. In fact, he pointed out the hypocrisy 
of the religious leaders in desiring the first and best places in their gatherings. So he was no great lover of these things. But this was a necessary occasion of state, and he could not enter on foot. It would have been improper for him to have done so. It would have been dishonoring to himself to do so. And so he needed something to ride upon. Now, it, it couldn't, so it couldn't be on foot, but neither could it be a war horse, because what is the picture of him riding on a war horse? He's come to destroy them. Now, interestingly, what do we find in Revelation? What is he riding upon? Not a donkey this time. This time it is on a great white war horse, and he has come, in fact, to judge them. But not this time. Not this time. Just for the moment, he is there coming in peace, and there's only one right thing for him to be riding. Not a car, not a chariot, not a war horse, but a donkey. Now, it couldn't be an old, tired donkey. Rather, a young donkey upon which no one had yet ridden. And that's precisely what he was going to have. And so he gives to the disciples these specific instructions to go find just such a donkey, very specific instructions, as if he knew exactly what was there, although he hadn't been there himself, and as if he knew exactly what was going to happen, because, of course, he did know exactly what was going to happen. And there was no uncertainty, therefore, in Jesus giving him these instructions. It was not, I know this is a big ask, uh, but I'd like a donkey, uh, a perfect donkey, in which no one has, has yet ridden. Now, there is a, a village here, and probably there's, there's some donkeys. I don't know. If it doesn't meet that exact specification, then that's good enough. Go ahead and get one, whatever you can find. And ask, first of all, if just say it's for the Lord's purposes, but if that doesn't work, here's some money to take with you as well. If we can pry it out of Judas's hand, we'll lend it to you. But no, he doesn't need to say any of that, does he? He doesn't need to say any of that because he is giving them an infallible errand, which he knows will absolutely happen precisely as he tells them, and he's under no doubt as to whether it happens. And therefore, it, will, it shall happen as he says. Now, wouldn't you like to be sent on infallible errands? And too many times we're, we're given jobs by people who who don't have all the information in their hand and don't control everything, and therefore the things that we do sometimes fail despite our best efforts. And that's not the case with the servants of the Lord Jesus as they go about his errand because there is no way they can fail. All they have to do is be faithful and to go do what they said, and everything's going to happen exactly according to plan. And that's exactly what happens. It doesn't fail. It happens exactly as he says in verse 20, 32. Sorry. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. Because he knew. This is omniscience. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Now again, I'm not sure that this technique is always going to work. I don't think you can always go about saying such things and they will just say, fine, okay. But we have to be reminded that the hearts of men are in the hands of our God. Do you understand that? I hope you do. You really, really must understand that. For whatever reason, we always tend to forget that. For whatever reason, the church is always forgetting that and thinking, 
Well, no, it has to do with how persuasive we are. It has to do with how relevant our message is. That's the only way. When we, we talk to people, they seem opposed to the gospel. And the only thing that's, the way, the thing that's got to change is to come up with a more relevant and persuasive message that has to do more with their felt needs. It has to do more with what's current in culture. Can I remind you that the heart of man would never have given away their brand new donkey for any purpose just like that? And much less would the heart of man ever, who is in, in opposition to the living God, ever turn to Christ in faith? The only way that ever happens is because a sovereign God through the power, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, reaches in and changes sovereignly the hearts of men and bends them to himself. And that's what happened on that day. I said, okay, the Lord has need of it. That's what is said even in Revelation 17, 17. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose. See. And that we, we must remember that for things like evangelism, for the work of the church, generally we have to understand it depends on God moving the hearts of those whom we interact with. Now, notice that the disciples themselves contributed to this work in verse 35. They brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. Now, we are certain they were willing to go ask others and the colt was pretty valuable. Again, we're thinking about the, the value of a new car is sort of what a new colt would be. Um, but they were willing to contribute themselves and so must we. There they had, they didn't have a new cult themselves, but they did have their own clothing, their outer garments then, that they spread as a sort of saddle on this donkey. That's exactly what they did. And they weren't the only ones in verse 36. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road before him to make a pathway for him to come into Jerusalem. But in all these things, let me say, whether it was their own humble clothing, which they were willing to put to use, or that colt, all of it was infallible. It had to happen. Jesus knew the situation. Jesus moved the hearts to make it that way. It was right, this occasion, that this not, he not come on foot. All of it had to happen. And therefore, it was infallible that it should, because it was according to the eternal, steadfast purposes of God. Well, thirdly and finally, as we're learning in all of this, a study in the infallible purpose of God, we see this necessary worship. Necessary worship. Verse 37, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, it's about time, isn't it, that they they do this. We were wondering about when they were ever going to get around to praising and worshiping God for the mighty works that they had sent. I thought all they could do is to question these mighty works. All they could do is to come up with alternative explanations for them. Maybe it's not, oh, look, Jesus has just cast out a demon. Well, maybe he's actually in league with the devil himself. Hardly, hardly. So finally, finally, the work that should have been done in the first place of worshiping the living God, the God-man, the Redeemer that was sent is finally in place. Finally, they are saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. I want us to see the sovereignty of God in this. 
I want us to see the hand of the Holy Spirit in this. You know, here they are. They seem to be singing something as if they are all together. They're unified in this. And the question is, did someone pass out printed material? At the conference, we wanted everyone to be singing the same thing, so we actually handed out printed material with half psalms and half hymns, appropriate for the things that were going to be said, and everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet. Did they have that? The answer is no. Is it according to the Word of God? Absolutely. In Psalm 118, verse 19, it's a messianic psalm, it's about the Messiah. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone or cornerstone. Who is at the Lord Jesus Christ? The builders are rejecting him, but he'll yet become the chief cornerstone. They can't stop that. It was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And here it is. Here's the words. Listen, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This is the words given to the Messiah. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the, that's the thing. That's the thing about the Messiah. He is coming in the name and the power and authority of the Lord. And he has come. And they must worship. Now, like all good and right worship, it is opposed. It had to happen. No one could stop it. The Pharisees can cry out all they want to. They can't stop it. But they're still going to try. It's still going to be opposed. And before I say anything else, let me say this. If you come today to worship, you understand you are opposed. Everything has probably stood against you even coming here in the first place. Various things would have kept you at home. And we have seen in the course of this church even the most unlikely things have sometimes kept people from doing this work. Why? Because those Pharisees have never stopped talking. And they're always seeking to oppose the right worship of the living God. Now again, he doesn't care if you go to the football game. Satan doesn't care if you go to some church that doesn't worship in accordance to your to his will. If you're just there for your own purpose and your own entertainment, well, you just go right ahead and you won't be opposed in it. But when you come to worship the living God in accordance with his word, your flesh will cry out against you, the world will decry you, and Satan will oppose you. And that's certainly what he did on this day. Teacher, rebuke you. Some of the Pharisees, not just one, some of them, called out to him from the crowd. So here he is riding on the donkey as a king coming in triumph into his own capital city. And, teacher, rebuke your disciples. How does the Lord respond? He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And here's the center of what I'm, what I'm trying to say in all of this. Okay, we see this steadfast purpose of Christ coming. And we see how that this errand was given of which they could not fail and did not fail. But far, far more than that is the necessity of this worship. It is absolutely necessary. I say that our worship is opposed, but it's necessary. But far, far, far more was this worship. 
It was opposed as much as it could be, but it had to happen so much so that if they had succeeded in shutting the mouths, this is no metaphor, this is no hyperbole that the Lord Jesus is saying. He's not just saying it to say it like, you know, if we stopped talking that even the stones would cry out and he didn't, didn't mean it. I think it's true. I think that in the power of God, that is exactly what would have happened. God has opened the mouth, by the way, even of the dumb donkey when men were unwilling to say and to do what needed to be said and done. And so it would have been even with the stones. It could not have been that this moment would have passed without worship, without vocal, verbal worship. It had to happen. This is the Creator coming to visit His people. Born as a baby, yes, He had come already. Baptized, yes, He had come and begun His public ministry. But now, now he comes as king, and there must be worship of the king. There must be celebration. No hyperbole about the stones. It had to happen, no matter who was going to do it. Now, we'll deal with the lament next time, Lord willing. But just notice for a moment the connection to Luke 13.33. He says this, speaking of this necessity of everything. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. You see this necessity? It has to happen. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, that the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate And assuredly, I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you see. And here these Pharisees, far from joining in, they they don't say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is abhorrent to them, and they're trying to stop those who are saying it. It's a reminder of that saying that they themselves didn't enter into the way of life, and they were stopping those who were coming to that. Well, of course, they were then going to soon enough be met with judgment. Well, it doesn't matter how opposed this worship was. It was necessary. It had to happen. It was right that Christ, as he comes as king to his own people, be acclaimed as such and be worshipped as such. All of these things in accordance with then the infallible purposes of God. Now, Right from that third point, I think the first and perhaps most significant application is just the necessity of our worship. You understand that our worship is necessary. You understand that pretty much everything else in life, everything else in the history of the world, everything else that happens in this universe is in various ways subservient to the higher purpose of the worship of the living God. The fact that there is a creation, the fact that there is a universe, it is for the larger purpose that God would be glorified. The fact that there are people and redeemed people is for the larger purposes that the living God would be worshipped in all of his glory and proclaimed in his kingship. You know, sometimes we look around and we see the church in a low situation in this world and we wonder who's left But, you know, this is what God says to Elijah. He says, uh, you know, I I alone and left. This is repeated not only in in the Old Testament. It's repeated in in Romans. 
Chapter 11, it says this, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. You remember, things once were worse even now than what they are now. The official state religion at this time, as I was mentioning to the the membership uh, class people yesterday, the official state religion was Baal worship and Asherah worship. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And he says, they have killed your prophets. Not just soft persecution. They actually have actively sought to kill all of us and I'm the only one left and I'm on a death list. They're about to come get me. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And what he is saying is that even in the worst of times, the worst of situations, when the church is at its lowest and state persecution at its worst, he has reserved for himself those who have not bowed the knee to Baal, meaning that they have bowed the knee to him. Because he is seeking such to worship him. It cannot be that there would fail on this earth those who would worship him. That's one of the the rationales that Calvin gives in the Belgic Confession of the infallibility of the church, that there will always be a church on earth because it cannot be that this great king would fail to have those who worship him from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. It has to be. God reserves for himself worshipers. Christ says to, you know, in, in the Gospel of John, he says to woman of Samaria at the well, that he is seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what the worship, work of evangelism is. Yes, yeah, truly subservient to the larger purpose of bringing worshipers in the house, gathering together the redeemed people of God that they might worship him. Brothers and sisters, if the stones can do it, so can we. In fact, so must we. That's what we've been created to do. That was the focus and intent of our lives. So it is the necessity of our worship. It is also, let me say, the certainty of our success. Now we say theoretically, wouldn't we love to be sent on an errand by the Lord Jesus, knowing that we could not fail, that the errand is infallible. It will certainly come to its desired end. Just what he intended will happen just as he proclaimed. Well, I want us to see that that's really the the, the work of the church is like that. There really is certainty in our success. If we're sent as a church, if we're sent on his errand, there will be success. Everything that he says is going to be true. Now, let me say, he says lots of things. He says that there will be persecution and opposition and all the rest of it and all the things that he himself experienced we can expect to see. But on his errand, there will be certainty of success. We know it. And I hope some of us have experienced that reality. We have seen that as we go on the errand of the Lord Jesus Christ, he sends us on our way to do his work, it will happen. And we know at the end, all we have to do is look at that wonderful place in Revelation chapter 7. And we see all the innumerable company from every tribe and tongue under heaven. There they are. Not one is missing. Not one is missing. Our success is certain. 
And therefore, we ourselves should go, not as the ones who are constantly wondering how, what are the implications of this, and what about this, and what about the other, but just those who go in faith, knowing that what we are called to do in the name of the Lord, and particularly in the proclamation of the gospel, he will certainly grant us success in accordance with his purpose. Thirdly and finally, let me just say, all of our possessions must be at God's disposal. Right. What would we think anyways of that man had he have said, no, this is my brand new cult. I'm not going to let you take this cult for, for any old reason. I don't know who you're talking about. I'm going to withhold it from the Lord's purposes. Well, he'd be infamous, wouldn't he? Now, thankfully, we know that it was impossible in the purposes of God that that would happen. We Thankfully, we know that in the power of the Holy Spirit, his heart was turned to do the right thing. But let me say, then he becomes for us an example. He wasn't one of the bands of disciples that had always been with him, but here was his moment. And I, know, I have no doubt at all that in all eternity we will also know this man. That will be his badge of honor. Some will be wearing some other, but he will, there will be a picture of his cult on, on his robe in some way. And we'll always remember his willingness to give up his most prized and, and possession, his, his brand new vehicle, for the purpose of the Lord. And the rationale that was given to him, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. That must be good. And if it was good enough for him, it must be good enough for us as well. Right? You know, the Lord in his kindness does not always ask us to give up everything. He, he some, in my experience, he seems like he asks for so very little. I'm constantly amazed. But that willingness and that open hand must always be there. Yes, he has firmer ways of dealing with us if, we, if we're tight-fisted to him. But no, we have an open hand and say, Lord, if you have need of it, it is for you. All things are God's. And if he needs what we have, then we should be glad. And it is to our blessing, indeed, and to our everlasting honor to use our possessions to bring them at God's disposal. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the infallible purposes of God. These things in eternity, the counsels of the triune God, coming together perfectly, coming as precisely as you had intended and planned, and nothing can stop them. Lord, we're thankful for the example of Christ, the supreme example of Christ, our great hero, And nothing could stop him from going to Jerusalem. His face was set steadfastly and he went on ahead of them towards this mission, though death awaited him. How we pray, Heavenly Father, that we ourselves would likewise carry out and walk in this life steadfastly according to your purposes. Knowing, Lord, that in your hands all of our errands for you are just like the disciples going after the cult. They cannot fail. The things of which you intend to be accomplished through us will certainly happen. And all we need to be is to be faithful in so doing. Recognizing, Lord, that success, particularly in terms of the gospel, it depends entirely upon the work of the Holy Spirit to turn the hearts of men and women and boys and girls towards their Creator, towards their Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. And Heavenly Father, therefore, we also pray that even our possessions, whatever they might be, whether cults or clothing or any of the things that we might have, that if the Lord has need of it, 
that we'd be willing to give. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.